1: That's shopify.com slash special offer.
0: Welcome back to another exciting edition of the Pointless Exercise podcast. We had to uh, reschedule the baseball pod for the week. So instead of going another week without any kind of podcast, I thought, I'll just hop on. And I, I could talk about a few things. And if you're wondering, yes, remember this crap is coming back soon. And the baseball pod will be back next week, most likely, so... Everything's going to be back to normal. It'll be fine. But let's talk about the, if we dare, let's talk about the Cubs and this kind of miserable season (laughs) that they're having again. I think to me the biggest surprise is that people are surprised that they're not very good. now. If, if your surprise is that you didn't think they'd be this bad, that you thought they were built to be mediocre and they're not that, then I, I can believe it. But if you were one of those people who looked at the big bunch of white guys that Jed went out and signed in the offseason and thought, hot damn, this is a really good team, I don't know that I can help you. Because I didn't look at this team and think they were considerably improved. Actually, I think there's a, a misconception about how good they were last year. You know, most people tuned out at the All-Star break when they were awful. And then I think because of that, when the season ended and they had somehow won 74 games, people were like, hey, you know, the Cubs turned it around. They were pretty good. They didn't. They didn't, they didn't turn anything around. They got hot at the end of the season when nobody cared, including the teams they were playing. They won eleven out of their last thirteen games. You know, you go eleven and two instead of, you know five and seven. Five and eight. Math is not my good thing. Say you go five and eight instead of eleven and two, which is kind of the clip they had been playing at. Um, you know, there's there's sixty-nine and ninety-three then. Right? Something like that. You know, look at it as, oh, well, that team won. There were people who were like, they were pretty close to 500. I don't think, I don't think six, I don't think 14 games under 500. Again, math is stumping me. Is close to being a 500 team. So if this team was going to get to 81 and 81, they were going to have to win seven more games than last year. And you say, yeah, well, they brought in all these guys. They should be, that should be an extra seven wins. Um, but it was its probably more like 10 or 12 that they really needed to win. Because the the, the thing we fail to remember about the National League last year was that it was just as bad as National League is this year, except there were fewer teams even trying to win than are trying to win this year. So if David Roski had his plucky little Cubs to play hard the last couple of weeks, you know, other than a sweep of the Phillies when the Phillies were trying to get into the playoffs and the Phillies eventually would make it. They didn't play anybody that was playing for anything. You know, they, their last, here's who they played in their last uh, series of the year from the 16th of September to the end of the season. They played the Rockies at home. They lost two out of three. They had a road trip seven games to Miami and Pittsburgh. Then they came home and they had those three games with the Phillies and they won two to one, four to two, and two to nothing. Then they finished with six games against the Reds. And the Reds were like, give us all the lottery balls you can give us. Um, and the Cubs even managed to lose two of those. But they weren't exactly facing a, a you know, a murderer's row of opponents. So when you look at the guys they added in the offseason, they added Dansby Swanson, who I felt was the fourth best of the shortstops. I, I still kind of do, but he's been good. Like that has turned out, at least in the very short term. This is a seven-year contract, but in the very short term, it's a good signing. He is a better. De- I no, won the Gold Glove, but we have Ian Happ, and we know gold, not all Gold Gloves are created equal. He is a really good defensive shortstop. One of the things I enjoy most about watching Dansby play is he seems like his goal on every ground ball. No matter how hard the ball is hit, no matter how far away he is from first base, his goal is to throw the ball just hard enough to beat the runner by one step, and he pretty much always does. So, I think I talked to Dave about it on the baseball podcast a few weeks ago. About when I was looking at the metrics for Dansby, the one that I thought was a red flag was his average throwing—the miles per hour on an average throw from short—and it was not elite. But when you watch him, it's pretty clear that if it's a routine play, he's not gonna throw that very hard. So when he when he when he needs it, he's got it for the most part. I think the only disappointment with Dansby is that he really has not hit for any power. You know they've played sixty games. he has nineteen extra base hits. He's only slugging four sixteen. And part of the reason the Cubs were all giddy about it was in his last two years in Atlanta, he had become a real slugger. He had 27 homers in 21, he had 25 homers in 22, he had the two highest sluggings of his career, 464 and uh, 20, and then 449 and 447. So I guess the three I somehow lumped 2020 in there. But he was trending uh, that he was becoming a slugger, and we haven't seen that. However, He's getting on base at a much higher clip than he ever has. He's still at three sixty, even a little he's cooled off a little bit. Uh and he's been good. You know, we've seen Cub free agents come in and just shit the bed. And he hasn't done that. So that was good. The other signing that they got that we had promised was was Cody Bellinger and we didn't know how much, given that he'd been terrible for three years. But supposedly he was healthy and he was gonna work with his old Dodger hitting coaches and blah 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 blah. Um the Cubs seem very excited about getting Cody and how they were going to turn him around. This was going to be great. And they were so confident that they could turn him around that they have no plans of keeping him after the season. <laughs> and he's he's been really good. Really good. Um, he's When he's healthy, and he's not now, he's their best player. And he's going to leave. And given Cub luck, they already know he's not coming back. They may make a token contract offer to him, but they, they're not going to go all out because you know we have got all these hot prospects lined up behind him. Um, if this ling- if this injury continues to linger, and we're getting all these well, he's taking batting practice. Oh, he's standing in the outfield <laughs> catching fly balls. It's like well, that's what Trey Mancini does, but Cody's actually supposed to chase him. I could see a world where his injury prognosis is still muddy at the end of July, and either they don't get very much for him. It could be a deal where they have to get a player named later, and that's based on how much Cody plays for the other team, or they really can't trade him at all. And then they really get nothing out of this other than, hey, that was kind of fun. This will literally be a thing like three years from now. We'll be like, wait a minute, Cody Bellinger played for the Cubs? It's kind of like the whole, do you remember Jack Peterson played for the Cubs? Barely. Uh, and Cody's been a lot better than Jack was. But anyway, so they signed those two guys, and, you know, Dansby was... You know, a, a solid player um, at a position they needed. It helped them in that they could move Nico to his better position, which was second base. That's worked out. Congratulations, Jed. Looked like Cody in the short term was working out, and then he crashed his knee or whatever into the wall in Houston, and we haven't seen him since. But then the rest of the guys were kind of, you know, Trey Mancini the third was coming over from Houston, where he was almost hilariously terrible for the Astros. From he got traded at the deadline from the Orioles, he struggled. He played for the Astros in the playoffs, he was terrible, absolutely terrible. He made one one contribution to the Astros in the entire playoffs. And that was he was hold he was playing first base, which we've seen is not a pretty sight. He was holding a runner on, and because he's so slow, he barely got off the bag when Kyle Schwarber hit a ball right down the line, where like a good first baseman would have you know, shoved off the bag and then had to have changed, shifted his weight and come back. Trey was basically just still there. He hadn't moved yet and saved a couple of runs and um, won, won the third game of the series for the Astros. They won the next one and they won the world series. Um, I was fine with them signing Trey because he had a history of being productive and this was a team that doesn't have any, still doesn't really have very much power He had some power. It had, I think, kind of, um, I think it's a couple of things. I think he had an outlier year in Baltimore that was always going to be an outlier year when when he hit 35 homers in 2019. Then he got cancer. He missed the entire 2020 year. And then coming back from that in 21, you know, there were still lingering effects of it. Uh, and then he got off to a really good start in 22 for the Orioles. His April and May were really good. But then he was he's been bad since then. So he's been bad now for an entire calendar year. He wasn't good his last 2 months in Baltimore. He wasn't good in Houston and he hasn't been very good for the Cubs. Um, and they signed him to a two-year deal. Don't didn't get Cody Bellinger for 2 years, but got trade the third for 2 years because the markets were a lot different. And they signed him like 10 days or so after they signed Eric Hosmer for no apparent reason. And when they signed Hosmer, I think the feeling was, oh, they're probably not, they don't think they can get Trey because why in the world would you need both? Well, they didn't. They didn't need both. Turns out they probably didn't need either. But uh, they've got Trey. He seems like a hell of a guy. Um, I just, I hope there's something in there that I just, I can't imagine that it's actually in there. James' Tion was... You know the the innings eater, the number two or three in your rotation. You know he'd had good years with the Yankees, and the Yankees were like, Yankees needed pitching, and they're like, no, that's fine, Jameson, thanks. And I think we're kind of seeing why. He has a he finally won a game. The Cubs finally won a game that he started uh, the other night. He's now one and four. They are one and eight when he starts. He has a scintillating 7.02 ERA, and his ERA plus is a very fancy 63. That has been great. Uh Hayden Wesneski in his first year in the rotation is doing kind of what I think you think that a guy in his first year in the rotation is going to do. He has some pretty good starts and he has some real clunkers, and he's a 500 pitcher with an ERA over 4.5. And, a half. Um, and Honestly, given where this season is going, he might as well just stay in the rotation. Just keep running him out there. They sent him to Iowa, and he completely blew away Iowa. And it's like, well, yeah, he's way too good for AAA. There's just no reason for him to go there. If this was a team that was like, you know, in first or second place or, you know, in a wild card position, I could see them being, all right, Hayden, we can't have you fucking up games up here. You're going to have to just dominate AAA for a while. They're not in that situation doesn't do any good to have him wasting pitches in Iowa. Now, uh, Justice Steele has the dreaded uh, forearm tightness. Forearm tightness, if, if, you, if you see that a pitcher has forearm tightness or bicep tendinitis, basically a little alarm goes off in Dr. James Andrews' office, and he pencils them in for Tommy John disease treatment. Because it's not 100%, but... It, a pretty good indicator. Steele's already had one Tommy John surgery, so he's a veteran of the Tommy John process. Um, let's hope he doesn't need another one. The Cubs were like, "Oh, he's fine. Just a little, just a little light tendonitis. It'll be fine." Then he threw, and they're like, "Oh, he's still fine. He probably won't. He made, you know, missed one start, and then at least they've they put him on the injured list. The Cubs are famous for letting guys sit on the roster when every other team would have made the obvious decision to, to you know, sit him." Park him on the IL. And the Cubs went ahead and they did put Steele on. So we're not going to have him for a while, and that's not great because he is their best pitcher. Um, but anyway, one thing Jed had been really good at in his his short tenure, and everything about Jed is short. As the the, the he's the he's the GM. He doesn't nobody the GMs don't have GM titles anymore. He's the president of baseball stuff uh, but Theo ever since Theo left and he gets to actually make the decisions one thing he had been really good at was identifying um, veteran relievers to bring in to fortify the bullpen and some of those guys became very useful flipping them to other teams this year he signed two guys three guys two that were they, the Cubs were sure they could count on one that were just taking an upside flyer Brad Boxberger, bad, now hurt. And Michael Fulmer, just bad. Very bad. Uh, one of the worst relief pitchers in, in baseball. And the Cubs have played 60 games. He's pitching 28 of them. <sighs> Got a 6.15 ERA. Um, pitching at a tough luck, though. You know, he's, he's allowed fewer hits in innings pitched 25 to 26 point in a third. The 13 walks really helped. And he's thrown three wild pitches. He hasn't hit anybody yet. He's got that going for him, which is nice. And then Julian Merriweather, the guy with the six straight 100-mile-an-hour fastball that you know was just a function of, hey, this team doesn't have anybody that throws with velocity. Because one thing the Cubs Cubs don't, the Cubs pitchers don't throw hard, and their hitters, most of them, don't hit the ball very hard. (laughs) And it's a great combo. A game that has turned into velocity. On both ends as being a key. Cubs are still lagging behind in in both of those things. They signed Julian Merriweather. He got off to a terrible start and his numbers are okay uh, of late. His ERA is down to 3.19 uh, and that took some doing because he had he had bloated up good. Um, when he comes in there's a couple of things you know you're gonna get from Boog. Number one he's gonna he's gonna want to tell the story about his Julian's nickname being Jerry. It's a. It's not a good story. It's not a funny story. It's stupid. Um, we don't need to hear it every time. The other thing is, both he and Taylor, for some reason, are gonna just chime in and be like, "I just can't believe that you know, uh, people don't think he's a better pitcher than he is. Look at this. Look how hard he throws. Yeah. So that's great. Their bullpen is uh, a major part of their struggles. But another part of their struggles is this is a Cub team that w- if they score early, don't count on them tacking on again. Like the other night, they got a 4 nothing lead with, with Hayden on the mound, and you figure, all right, they're going to score six or seven runs in this game. No, they're not. They're just going to stop. Which gives the starting pitcher and the bullpen uh, a lot less. Um, they're walking a tighter... Tight rope. Is that a thing? A higher tightrope? I don't know what it is. Some kind of tightrope. Uh, that's not good. Then there's um the great Tucker Barnhart, who was brought in as this, you know, defensive wizard of a catcher. He's a former gold glove winner. Left handed bat, you know, but decent bat. We were told. And you look at his stats, like it's never been decent. He's never had a league average season at behind at, you know at the at the plate and he's been terrible he's a, his, his OPS plus is 21 it's embarrassingly bad he has one extra base hit in 27 games he strikes out a third of the time and honestly given how softly he hits the ball and how slow he is strikeouts is probably the preferred outcome most of the time when he's batting because at least he'll only make one out at a time but the Cubs were very excited about him because when they signed him, he immediately got to work. He started calling all the pitchers. He wanted to talk to him. That's great. He'd love that. You know who else does that? Uh, coaches do that. Because that's kind of basically what Tucker is. Kind of, kind of basically. Well said by me. Um, and the Cubs are at the point again, second time this year, where they have three catchers on their roster. They are back to 13 pitchers, which means they only have four bench players. And that means every game, two of their bench players are catchers who can't play any other position. And when one of them is Tucker and he can't play, there's no reason to have three catchers. The, I know that they're deathly afraid that if, especially given Miguel and i's injury history, they let Tucker go and Miguel gets hurt, you know, they, they don't have another catcher. Um, so I would say this then. If I, were, if I were David Ross and Jed handed me that roster, I would say I need another bench person because I can't use Tucker, really. He's, you know. But the reality is David Ross loves having three catchers. He'd have four or five catchers if he could. He's a, he's a former third catcher. He was a below average big league player. That's putting it kindly. He had a couple of decent offensive seasons. He got a reputation as this defensive whiz and this John Lester whisperer, which was really overrated. But he knows the value of to the the third catcher of having three catchers. And so, of course, he's always going to want it. But it really hamstrings an already weak bench by having a catcher on it that you really don't want to use. And the only reason he's there is just in case one of the other two gets hurt. Because as they found out, when they let the great Luis Torrens go, you're always one wild backswing away from your, one of your catchers having head stuff, and now you got to have another catcher. Uh, the interesting thing is, they put Edwin Rios on the disabled list on um, on Wednesday to get back to th- to get back to 13 pitchers. They wanted to activate the great Michael Rucker, and he hadn't he'd been sent down too recently to be immediately brought back. The only way you could bring him back without the 15-day waiting period for a pitcher was to have him replace an injured player. And they made up a phantom injury for Edwin Rios. Why didn't you just make up a phantom injury for Tucker Barnhart? You know, you park him on your injured list. He's still around. He could be miraculously activated if something happens to, uh, to Miguel or Jan. You don't have to actually use him. Players don't like that. Players don't like to be stashed on the injured list. Um, so it's a it's a problem for the Cubs. But this is a problem that they have because they have such a limited roster in the first place. You know, they can't. They need everybody. They he needs everybody on that team most nights, you know, to make up for bad match, you know, bullpen guys come in and it's a, automatically a bad matchup for the Cubs overmatched hitters and you want to be able to make a change and then you can't make a change because when you get down to the final option and it's Tucker and his little balsa wood bat, no, that's not great.
1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: However, they do have a guy hitting over 500 at Iowa. Whew, that'll bring him up. That, of course, would be the dainty little Nick Madrigal. And it doesn't prove anything. Hitting at Iowa does not translate directly to hitting in the big leagues, and if you want to, uh, you want a good example of that. Just ask Matt Mervis; he could tell you. He was destroying Triple A, and he has really struggled in the big leagues. So the fact that Nick was having basically no impact in the big leagues is hitting well at Triple A seems like a great thing. But it just doesn't matter. If you bring him up, you're still getting the same Nick Madrid he sent down 10 days ago, whatever it is. He sucks. There's just no point to do it. But you know they're going to do it. Because the Cubs so want him to be good that despite all evidence to the contrary, they just keep thinking it's going to happen. And it's not going to happen. He's, a limited, he's limited athletically. He's limited in size and strength. Uh, supposedly he has slightly above average speed, but we don't see it. And I think part of it is it's not functional speed. If if he can run kind of fast in a straight line, I think that's the only way he can do it. You know, uh, trying to round bases and, you know, run to balls and that kind of stuff. It's not the same. So at some point they're going to be tempted, I would think, to send Mervis down to work on whatever at Iowa and to bring little Nick up. And, may, you know, play him at third because the third baseman are struggling so much. And it's just going to be a repeat of what we saw before. He's going to be bad and little, and he's going to annoy the shit out of us. And David Ross is going to talk about how great he is, and Boog is going to act like any play he makes is, is a he's, he's, he's tiny little Brooks Robinson over there. And he's not. Um, they are far better off, as ugly as it is right now, you are far better off just leaving Mervis up and having him take his lumps. One of the things he's doing is he's hitting the ball pretty hard when he hits it. He's, he's striking out too much. And But when he is hitting the ball, he's hitting it hard. And I think he just let him hit because really you need to figure out what you got there because first base is too important a position. You know, on a team with limited offense, they long-term you can't not get, you need a lot of offense out of first base and they need to figure out right now, is there any sense in counting on him going beyond this year or not? And here you are fourth place. You needed an off day on Thursday to make sure you didn't not only fall into last place in the division, but have the overall worst record in the National League. I, if you can't give Matt Mervis the bats right now, I don't know when the fuck you're ever going to be able to give them to him. So I would just keep giving them to him. Um, you know, he, he strikes out at less of a rate than Tucker Barnhart does, at least. That's something. Christopher Morel was the hottest player in the world when the Cubs brought him up, and he stayed that way. He hit nine homers in first 12 at best. He's been awful since then. But we've we've lived the Christopher Morel experience before, and it is these peaks and valleys, and you know the valleys are coming. Uh, for the life of me though, I don't understand why they why Ross refuses to use the fact that. One of the advantages you get with Morel is that he's positionally versatile. He can make errors at every position. Uh, but he can play, to somewhat of a degree, all three outfield spots, second, short, and third. You don't want him playing short for you know, very long. But in a pinch, he can do it. And he's, he's a terrible fit for DH for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's like Mr. Energy. And he's kind of like a little kid that, you know, know, on a rainy day, he's locked in the house and he's running around driving everybody nuts. That's what he does in between DH at bats. He doesn't know what to do with himself. And it's better to have him actually in the field where he can go kind of run around and wear some of that off. The other thing is... The Cubs are still doing a shit job of resting their other players. And the fact that you don't really have a DH, they they have the worst DH, the second worst DH situation in the entire National League and the fourth worst in baseball. They get no production out of DH. A lot of that falls on trade the third. But even then, he plays way too much in the field. I would rather he DH and go 0 for 4 than play first and go 0 for 4 and let, like, four balls get past him that he just can't move to go get. But when they brought Morel up, the, I thought the idea was going to be, okay, we'll use the fact that he can play these positions to give, say, a day off where he doesn't play right field, but he DHs. To give Hap a day off where he doesn't play left, but he DHs. You know, pick a good matchup and play him at third instead of Wisdom. God forbid the great Miles Mastroponi. Have him play second to rest, give, let Nico DH for a game. Or have him play second where Nico plays short and Dansby. It, it makes sense, right? You know, it's a long season, and instead of you only have, like I said, you only got four bench guys. One of them is Tucker Barnhart. It makes perfect sense to me then that you're just you would use Morel to give quasi days off to those other guys, and they just don't do it. And I don't know if that's just a lack of imagination from their um, functional idiot of a manager, or if it's you know the the magic computer that the nerds. Use and then send Ross his lineup decisions down. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. I think he would get better production out of Morella at the plate if he actually played him in the field more. As crazy as that sounds, I just think that's. I think this is how some guys are, and I think he's one of them. I also am really enjoying the fact that people are like, "Oh my God, what are they going to do with Mike Talkman when Cody comes back?" Um. If I were Mike Talkman, I would kinda be hoping that Cody would come back relatively soon because he's played well enough that he's gonna stick. He's not they're not gonna try to force him back to Iowa. I think he's out of options anyway. He's gonna stick. But if Cody's injury lingers and he plays more, his history tells you he will not play well. He won't hit well. And he may find it's kind of a sweet spot for Mike, right? He's played in um, He's played in 17 games, he's at 295, he's getting on base, 429, and he's slugging a terrible 318. And so right now, he's basically, he's played well enough that Ross thinks he's good. And if Cody comes back, Talkman goes to the bench, he DHs once in a while, he can play right or left, you know, you can work him in to do the thing that they won't do with Morrell. But if he sticks around too long, and he starts to not hit, then by the time Cody gets back, they could be, hey, you know what? My Tuckman sucks. Huh. I didn't realize that. like, well, you're the only ones that didn't realize that. So, he needs... He should be in there, like, helping Cody's rehab. Like, going into the massage room and, you know, giving him a couple extra, you know, rubs. Because he's at a point right now where he needs Cody to come back. So, the people still think he's good. Uh... I am constantly befuddled by David Ross's inability to make out a batting order, and like I've said on this pod and written in the newsletter, I don't know how much of it to blame on him and how much of it to blame on the nerds, because I'm of this firm belief that the 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 two main reasons he was hired were number one, Theo saw this kind of imaginary, he projected this, you know catcher's intellect and leadership onto Ross that probably wasn't really there. Um, And I think the other thing was they needed a malleable manager. They were tired of Joe telling them that their brilliant ideas were, you know, not as great as they thought. And they wanted somebody who would just do it. So it's hard. I can't figure out how much of it do I blame on him You know, normally, you'd look at the batting order and be like, the manager's a fucking moron. Well, you can still look at him, the manager is a fucking moron, but it doesn't mean he's making out the batting order. But, as I wrote about this last, this week, Ian Happ is not hitting like a three-hitter, but he is hitting, he is doing something really well. He's getting on base at a really good clip. And the Cubs haven't had a lead up here since Dexter left. And it's like, actually, you do have one. Why don't you use him? You can move Hap to the one spot. You can move Nico down to the second spot, where I think he probably would. Um, he could he would benefit from because he's got kind of an inside-out swing. He likes to go the other way. He would benefit from Hap getting on base over forty percent of the time in front of him, which would open up that hole on the right side, which actually opens because you can't shift. So Nico could try to shoot the ball that way. He's going to do it anyway, but when he does it to lead off the game, the second baseman's there. And when you bat Miles Mastroboni in front of him instead of, you know, oh, we needed, you know, we needed to bat Nico second. Miles is out, so second baseman is there. Dansby slots in better, I think, as a three hitter than Hap does. So I know he does. And you got Saya. Then you should have Cody at some point, or the great Mike Tuckman. But it's it makes that top of the order fit better, and they just won't do it. And the other thing that drives me nuts is that, okay, if you insist on batting Hap third, you can def- I can you can defend it a little bit when he's batting left-handed because he's still relatively productive left-handed. He just doesn't have the power he used to, and I, it's not because he's not strong enough or whatever. He changed his swing to make more contact, and um, and it has upped his batting average, but it's sopped a lot of his power. He was a guy who for the I think three times the first four years he slugged over five hundred. Saying, that's pretty good. He hasn't done it since, and it's going in the wrong direction. The other weird thing about it, though, is it's made his batting average go up. He still strikes out a shitload. He's going to strike out over 170 times this year. They had that whole thing last week where on the, on the homestand, he struck out four times on pitches that were just barely off the outside corner in big situations. And there's a couple things about that. Number one, as Nico said the other day, the – the strike zone you see on TV is bullshit, right? I mean, that's just some engineer marquee, engineer, they don't have engineers. It's some unpaid intern going, I think it's this. Um, but the other thing about it was people were like, oh, you know, you screaming at the umpire. And the umpires suck. We know umpires have always sucked. They're always going to suck. There is some responsibility for the hitter, right? Where if you're in an RBI situation, and you've been rung up a couple of times on pitches just barely off that corner, you're probably going to have to swing at it. Now, you don't want to swing at it. Ideally, like, I know that's a ball, but if it's not, if you have a pretty good idea that it's probably not going to get called a ball, what are you taking it for? Just to prove a fucking point? No. Swing at it. But anyway, I completely really lost the track on what I was saying about Ian. Um, he, batting right-handed he's useless. He walks occasionally. Um, But he doesn't hit hit for average, he doesn't hit for power. At some point, I think he would go to him and go, are you really a switch hitter? Or are you a throws right, bats left guy? Because this is ugly. Even even before you get to that point, you don't have to bat him third. Do they think he can't remember where to bat if you change it? Like, "Oh, oh, he always bats behind Dansby. He won't know when to bat. It's like, oh, fuck. Just have him bat, say, sixth for a while when he has to bat right-handed. It's not going to improve his stats, but it's going to get him out of some of the, you know, hopefully your lineup will actually function until you get to him. And then if relievers come in, he gets to bat left-handed again, he's in the middle of your lineup. It's not like you benched him or batted him ninth. I just don't get it. I joked about this, but the more I thought about it, I thought maybe it wasn't as much of a joke as I intended it to be. Um, I, I joked that, you know, he's got that... You see him sometimes in the dugout. He Before he before he comes up to bat, he has his helmet off, and he's staring into the helmet, which looks weird, right? It's, it looks just as weird as... Remember when A-Rod was smelling uh, Matt Carpenter's salsa? This is not a euphemism. He was smelling Matt Carpenter's salsa, and he had the lid on the jar, and he's over there, he, that's what it's kinda of what it looks like. Like he's just maybe he's smelling the helmet. But actually he found some hokum <laughs> some pseudoscience bullshit where he has this decal with this certain pattern of dots, and he won't show it to anybody, it's proprietary. Um and he has it inside his helmet and he stares at it and it somehow focuses his vision. Miraculously. And I joked the reason they can't bat him leadoff is he won't have enough time to stare at the helmet before he bats. And I started to worry that maybe that's really why they bat him third. So at least for that first at bat, he's got plenty of time to just stare at it. How about this? Put one in your glove. When you're out in left field, which there's two outs, just stare at it. I do think we're finally coming around on the idea that he's not a great defensive left fielder. Right, Like, the metrics took this weird shift last year. in Two directions for him. Well, the same direction and two different things for him. His defensive metrics went way up. And he makes sliding catches. And he does because he slides a lot for some reason. Like, he doesn't even, as much as I fucking hated Jim Edmonds and I hated him, he would slow down and then dive after balls. And it would look kind of cool. It would look cooler if he wasn't a fucking Cardinal. It would look cooler when he was an Angel than when he was a Cardinal. And by the time he was a Cub, he was just so slow. He really was having to dive at everything. Um... That got, I guarantee you that won Edmonds at least a couple of gold gloves for the sliding catches that really didn't need to be. And I think I think Hap kind of fell into that last year. But we see him out there. He takes these weird, choppy – it's not even the routes he takes to the ball. He does this weird thing with his feet. He chops his feet. Like, he takes, like, six little steps instead of two big ones as he's chasing after balls. Uh, but And then the other thing – so anyway, people seem to have come around on the fact that even though Boog is going to remind you that he's a gold glover every time he, make, he catches anything, eh, you know, we've been all over the fact. Left field gold gloves, since they changed the award, you had to have a left fielder instead of just the three best outfielders. That award has gone to some real bums, and Hap is clearly on the bum pile for that award. Last year, his, his numbers against batting right-handed improved to an acceptable level, but his batting average on balls in play was abnormally high. And it wasn't because the exit velocity had gone up. He basically, he, balls found some holes. You know, some of those little parachute bloopers that fall between the infielders and the outfielders. You know, when you don't have a tremendous amount of at-bats, because he doesn't bat right-handed that much, if you get six or seven fluky hits, your numbers go way up. And then the next year, if it course corrects, and not, you do not not only you don't get those six or seven lucky ones, a few balls that you think are going to drop in get made plays on, your average goes... Way bad in the other direction, and then you combine the two, and you probably get the reality, which is eh, not that great. The athletic is seems to write every day now, either Mooney or Salata, an article about are the Cubs going to be sellers <laughs> at the deadline? And I mean the way they're playing now, the idea is going to be yes. But regardless of their record, right? Why do they have to be buyers or sellers? It's it seems odd to me, and maybe it's because I was a kid and I thought it was different. It felt to, it feels to me looking back. The deadline trades in baseball used to be about. We need we're not getting any production out of the left field, but we've got a couple. We've got like, we've we've got five decent starters. You've got an extra outfielder, and. You don't have five decent starters. Why don't we trade? We'll give you one of our pitchers, and you give us that left fielder. And it was two teams trying to actually get better. Instead of one saying, here, um, take our prospects. We can't can't give anybody off the big league roster. It's just Our roster's too precious. Or other guys going, we don't want big league players. We want these lottery tickets in the minors. And last year, the Cubs made a trade like that. Like the first one I was talking about when they traded Scott Efros for Hayden Wisniewski. This was a trade that made, like, baseball sense for once. Yankees needed a bullpen arm, and they wanted to get a guy who they wouldn't just have for one, for, like, two months and the playoffs. Cubs, all their top pitching prospects, kept turning into relievers. You know, they get to double A, and all of a sudden it's like, uh, yeah, his stuff will play up in the pen. That's That's the pitch lab signal for, fuck, he's not that good. His stuff will play up in the bullpen. And so the Cubs, the Yankees had a guy in Wesneski that projected to actually be a starting pitcher. And the Cubs could trade F. Ross to them, who had years of control left, who was a good reliever, and, had years, and that trade made sense. Cubs need a starter, Yankees need a bullpen guy, boom. F. Ross caught Tommy John disease, Hayden caught Cub fever, and um, hasn't worked out for either team yet. Um, but long-term, it probably should work out relatively well for both teams still. I don't understand why you can't make more of those kinds of trades, right? And But it doesn't seem like those trades get made at the deadline anymore. It seems like it's always one team is literally just giving up, and another team is loading up. So if I were Jed, what I would be looking for at the deadline is trying to make this roster fit, You know, don't have a, we don't have, the Cubs do not have a third baseman. They don't. Oh, for fuck's sake, I saw the other day that somebody was trying to make the case to bring Jim or Candelario back. All right, whatever. Like, maybe you look to make a trade where you can get a third baseman. You know, see if you can go out and find your Steve Bouchel. But something. Why don't you do that? Why does it always have to be buying or selling? So anyway, that's the Cubs in all their glory. One of the really frustrating things about this is the Cubs, when they cast away all the World Series guys, Jed was like, we're not rebuilding. I was like, well, you're clearly rebuilding. You can lie about it, but you're clearly rebuilding. And it's becoming clear now as we look at those trades that through a couple of reasons. Number one, they... Um, hung out of those guys too long. If they were, if they had just decided, fuck it, we're, we're starting over. Uh, they hung out to him too long. They didn't get enough in return. And the one trade that's going to save it all is peakro Armstrong for Javi, which ignores the fact that just the year before the Cubs could have, the Cubs who were so high on Pete Crow Armstrong, could have drafted him if they took Ed Howard instead. You wouldn't even have made that trade. You could trade Javier or something else. But what's frustrating is you look at Pittsburgh, who is still playing over their skis somehow. They they had this great record for a while, and then they were terrible. And then they were, hey, we're Pittsburgh again. And now I think mainly they get they got to play the Cardinals a bunch. And the Cardinals are joyously bad. It's actually really fun. It looked like they got like back on track when they came in and beat up on the Cubs. And then they won, I think they won a series after that, and they've been terrible again, which is really fun. So, anyway, the Pirates are still kind of up there, but the team that actually looks like it might be good going forward is the Reds. Ugh, the fucking Reds, really. But I have good news for Cub fans, bad news for Reds fans. So the Reds—they're bringing up all these. They're making these exciting moves. They brought Andrew Abbott up, uh, who looks like he could be a really good pitcher. They brought Eli De la Cruz up, who looks like he could be a star. Um, they've got other guys. They brought up who People don't think he could really stick at shortstop because he's tiny. Whatever. But they're bringing these guys up, and they're creating a real buzz. Spencer Steer is playing well at first base, falling in for Joey Votto. So things are looking up. They have a good record. They've moved ahead of the Cubs. They don't look like they're going to fall behind the Cubs anytime soon. Um, they're going to be in the wild card hunt because everybody's going to be in the wild card hunt in the National League. So Reds fans are getting excited. Well, I got news for you. Time to curb that excitement. Gordon Whitmire is coming to town to tell you how everything really sucks. So, enjoy that. Gordon lasted a lot longer in Chicago than we deserved. In the bad way. So, anyway. So, that's the Cubs. The Bears have had a... Couple of made a voluntary mini camp and everybody freaked out. What Jalen Johnson didn't go to it. And it's like, uh, oh, well, it's voluntary, right? He came to the mandatory one. The Bears are doing weird shit with uh, the having DJ Moore and Justin Fields refuse to say whether they play catch when they're not practicing. Just fun. There's all kinds of stuff like that. Um, but now people are freaking out about uh, the stadium again because. First, it was they had, Bears hired Kevin Warren to be the president, and then uh, there was an overwrought story in, on ESPN.com about oh my god he fucked up the the Big Ten TV rights and oh he's incompetent and blah 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 and he might be I mean a guy who voluntarily goes to work for the Bears kind of question his competence but um, turns out that really what that was was um, the the short term sheet, you know, base, the basic, like, um, the high-level negotiations had been settled with Fox, NBC, and, um, CBS. It doesn't have all the details in it. Inevitably, when you get into the details, you have to start horse trading and fighting and stuff. And then with him leaving, there were a bunch of Big Ten presidents and athletic directors who were, you know, just it's a, that's a rare breed. Um, they saw it as a chance to like relitigate the whole thing, and it term what it turns out is it's basically gonna work out exactly the way it was supposed to work out before. So that that kind of that crisis kind of blew over. Now we're in a new crisis, which is oh, shit. The Bears can't, the Bears even though they're tearing down the whole racetrack can't afford to build a stadium in Arlington Heights if the if the tax rate doesn't go down. and uh, now we might have to go to Naperville or we can go to Rockford. Yeah, I live in Rockford. I don't want the Bears here. Actually, if they do, I want it close enough where I can at least sell parking on my on my lawn, so I can make a few bucks. Um, I got news for you. The Bears are gonna build that stadium in Arlington Heights. <laughs> this is the negotiating part. This is, Kevin Warren wasn't there for this part of the negotiation. He hadn't arrived yet. And just like the Big Ten saw a chance of him leaving and the deal not completely wrapped up yet to try to relitigate parts of that. He's doing the same thing with the city, with Arlington Heights, the village, the town, the city, whatever it is. And so it's just like when the Cubs were going to go to Rosemont, remember that? You have to propose some kind of alternative. Oh, we might just have to do this instead, even if it's absurd. You have to you have to have one. That's all this is. Um the Bears are still going to build their big swanky stadium and they're going to build it in Arlington Heights on the land that they bought and inevitably Arlington Heights is going to give them some concessions. But here's the other thing. They're probably concessions Arlington Heights is already willing to give, right? We could probably do this for them, but you know what? Unless we have to, we're not going to, maybe they'll never ask for it. Well, they got to the asking for it part. So, just relax. Uh, some dope on Twitter was, uh, you know, like, oh, the McCas- the McCas- can't afford to build a stadium. They don't have billions of dollars. They have to get public money. They have to do whatever. It's like, even the owners with billions of dollars, they don't just whip out a checkbook and pay for the stadium. You know, the, could the Bears could the Bears just borrow enough money to build the a three billion dollar stadium? Yes. They absolutely could. They could do it tomorrow, but they're not going to. Could the Bears write a check for $3 billion same? Probably not. Do they have a billion dollars now, given the huge TV deals that, for the last? Yes, they probably do. You know, I knew one of the McCaskey grandkids, and there was a time when the grandkids, it was going to get to a point, if Virginia had died, say, 15 years, well, 20 years ago, the grandkids were basically going to force a sale because they weren't getting very much money out of the team. And that was their chance to cash in. The only way they felt they could cash in was to get money. Well, all of a sudden when the TV contracts just exploded and the bears were getting money, the grandkids started getting cash and now they don't ever want to sell. It's like, no, oh, no, no, no. I'm getting a check every year. This is fine. That's all I ever wanted. There's, they have money. They really do. They're not poorly situated anymore. They used to be. They used to, people talked about McCaskey's being cheap. It was true, and they were cheap because they didn't have a lot of money. Well, A, they're not cheap anymore. I mean, they gave Khalil Mack the... He made him the highest-paid defensive player in NFL history when he signed to that extension. They do... They, they may spend money on stupid shit, but they've got it. They actually spend it. I mean, I know George drives a Corolla and lives in Sycamore or whatever, but that doesn't mean his bank account doesn't have a bunch of zeros in it. It does. Um... The stadium will not get built because the Bears can't afford it or can't access the money to do it. They can But this is a big deal, and like every other rich person, they want to put in the, the least amount of their own money as possible. And that's what they're doing right now. And that's Kevin Warren's job, right? Get this done and get money, suck money out of as many other places as possible. That's your job. Go get them. And that's what he's trying to do right now. So... Uh, the last thing is, I enough ink has been spilled about the Succession finale. I thought it was great. I thought the last season was was great. I thought the election night episode was one of the best episodes of TV ever. Um, and a little scary, too, <laughs> because it seems so plausible. Um, I thought the last episode was great. I thought, I, I knew, this is a spoiler if people haven't watched it, I knew when there was like 20 minutes left in the episode and Kendall was situated to take over, that there was no way he was going to take over. It was going to be 20 minutes of, oh, hey, Kendall. So that was pretty good. So that was very well done. That was a show that I kind of felt, I I watched it kind of, hey, it's the Sunday night show on HBO I'm going to watch it for the first few episodes that first season. And I didn't think it was that great. But I kept watching it. And then I realized after a while that I was looking forward to watching the show, which means it's gotten pretty good and then in subsequent seasons it really it it, it really hit its stride uh, i thought that was very good uh, i thought it was weird though that hbo ended barry on the exact same night it the, the, the whole barry finale just kind of got because that's that was also a really good show that show um was not really a comedy it was not really a drama it was it got really dark sometimes it was just really well made um And Bill Hader started directing more and more of the episodes as the show went on, and some of the ones, some of the scenes he directed were amazing. I I still think the single funniest um, scene in any show the last ten years was one where he put a bomb under this house, and it wouldn't, he couldn't get, it was supposed to detonate with his phone, and he couldn't, and he was on, um, he had to call the he had to call the bomb makers like customer service, and he's on hold. And then he's talking to the customer service rep and you hear the explosion in the background and she goes, oh, it sounds like the bomb has detonated. Is there anything else I can... help you? <laughs> It's just tremendous. Um, as much as I like those shows, um, and they're over now and they've moved on. They have cleared the way now. I don't think it's this week. I think it's a week after for the return of... One of the most implausibly good shows in TV history. When I saw who was in this show and what the, and what the concept of the show was, I thought, well, that show might be kind of funny, but it's not going to be that great. The show is The Righteous Gemstones, and it is amazing. That show is so much better than it has any business being. It is so funny. And it's got a great cast, and there's some of the some of the lesser heralded cast members are the key parts of it. And um, you know, I like um, like Danny McBride. I think he's really he can be. You have to find just the right role for him, or he's great. He's perfect. He's he's great in this. John Goodman's really good in it. Um, Adam Devine is really good in it. They say his name. That doesn't feel like I said his name right. But it's the sister who. Uh, Judy Gemstone, played by Edie Patterson, who is by far my favorite character in this entire show. Her and her weird, little, her uh, just strange husband, BJ. There was an episode last year where um, BJ, as a grown man, was getting baptized, and he wore the greatest outfit uh, in baptism history. He wore a blue or a purple velour. One onesie, basically. It was shorts. And somebody made fun of him and said it was a onesie. And um, he said... Oh, shit. I already forgot what he said. But it was... uh, Maybe he said it was a onesie with a cummerbund. Anyway, it was very funny. Um, So that's a good show. When that comes back, Um, um, Walt Goggins is on it. He plays uh, Baby Billy, who's their uncle. And he's just... If you haven't watched that show, watch that show. If you have, it's back. You can watch it. Uh, so anyway, like I said at the top, uh, remember this crap is coming back. Um, even though my co-host has been busy getting thrown out of Little League games, um, he, he is coming back. And then the baseball pod will return, uh, we think, next week. Uh, but for this week, you got me babbling for almost a full hour. And if you made it to the end, congratulations. and Thank you. You're better... You're a better man than I. I. I stopped paying attention to this twenty minutes ago, and I'm the one doing all the talking. Uh, if you don't subscribe to the podcast, you just wait to see it pop up. Go ahead, subscribe to it. Uh, it's always appreciated if you subscribe to the newsletter. Great if you don't. To this exercise.com, sign up and uh, and um, subscribe to that. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. And uh, for those of you who uh, who read the newsletter, thanks for reading the newsletter. Talk to you guys soon.
1: Many of us have herpes.